Welcome to The Scientific Method. We are Pacific Northwest University of Health Sciences foray into the world of intellectually entertaining dialogue. From healthcare to pop culture, controversial conversations to advancements in scientific technology and more, we provide expert insight on science and society. We are an exercise in overcoming the noise and discovering the truth. again for joining us. Uh, today's conversation is on end-of-life care, and uh, it's a conversation that we felt very important to have because, quite frankly, it's a very uncomfortable conversation, which is why it's so important to have it. Um, people don't talk about this very often because the subject matter is inarguably very uncomfortable and uh, stressful. It's discussing loss and losing a uh, loved ones or even your own uh, end of life. So to, to get a better understanding of it and why it's so important to have those conversations and sort of see the ramifications of not having those conversations, we sat down with second year PNWU student Katie Buckman. Uh, Katie is involved in uh, more things than I could list in a, a podcast here, um, but she's such a passionate student that we have here at the university. She is one of the founders of our school's week, uh, which is called What Matters in the End Week, which is a week-long campus event that aims to educate our medical students on the importance of conversations like this and end-of-life care in general, because that is something that is uh, apparently, sadly, missing in many med medical educations. She also introduced us to Lori Jackson. Lori Jackson also helped to found this week. Uh, she is the Senior Director of Compass Care, which is Virginia Mason Memorial Hospital's end-of-life line of services. Uh, she has over 30 years of experience in this field, and the the information that each of them brought to the table and the passion that they have for this subject is just unmatched. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you guys do as well. So before we begin, I'll have each of you uh, just introduce yourselves and explain why um, you come to the table for a conversation like this today. So Katie, I guess we'll start with you. Yeah, so um, my name is Katie Buckman and I am a second year student at PNWU. And um, I'm here today to discuss a topic that I am very passionate about. Um, I worked in an intensive care unit as a nurse's aide for three years before starting medical school. And um, I saw a lot of people uh, go through unnecessary suffering. Um, and I also saw the delivery of bad news um, to people by doctors who were comfortable with the topic and by doctors who were not comfortable with the topic. Um, so. I'd love to just talk more about it today. And I'm Lori Jackson. I am the Senior Director of Compass Care, which is a service line through Virginia Mason Memorial Hospital in Yakima. We focus on all issues that have to do with advancing illness and end-of-life care. So uh, palliative care and hospice are really at the top of the list of those. And, and like Katie, I, I have a real passion for getting the word out about how providers can better uh, have those con those difficult conversations and help patients live their best lives, even at the end of life, and often especially at the end of life, rather than continuing with treatments that will not benefit them, uh, 
but being really transparent with them. Mm -hmm. So the reason that I thought it was so important to have this conversation is because in essence, it's a conversation that people don't want to have. Um, the ability to get some information out there and hopefully increase comfort a bit feels very important. Um, so the conversation is on end of life care and advanced care planning, which essentially means talking about death and planning for the death of a loved one or planning for your own death in some instances. And of course, that's uh, a natural thing that people probably aren't very comfortable with because the idea of loss and whether you're going to be the one that's lost or losing somebody you love isn't something that's easy to accept, no matter how much you planned for it. So when we're discussing this, what is it, Katie, you had written a blog for us mm -hmm. uh, a while ago, and you talked about how our society views death as a failure of the medical system and not as a natural part of life. And everybody, everything comes to the end of this cycle. And that's the truth of it, no matter how hard it is to approach or how hard it is to think about. What is it about that approach that our society has that makes this conversation so difficult, especially as somebody in the healthcare field? I, I feel like it's multifactorial. Um, there have been just incredible advances in medical technology throughout the years um, in a relatively short period of time. And um, along with that progression, we never really kind of took a step back to um, pause and say, um, when is it appropriate to use this technology? Um, and it's a common, like you said, a common um, perception in our society that um, medicine can cure anything. Um, and that's just not true. And, um, you know, life still has a 100% mortality rate and that will never change. Um, and I think the other part is, um, you know, TV shows mm. <laughs> is they're, it's kind of painful to watch. Um, I don't know if it's just because I'm in medical school or what, but um, they definitely give this unrealistic portrayal of, um, you know, what happens when someone goes into a cardiac arrest or, um, you know, it's like, oh, we just pump on their chest a couple times and they're back. And mm -hmm. it's that's not at all what it's like. And um, it can be very, very traumatic for people that have this expectation of what they see on TV. And then when their loved one, um, you know, unfor you know, if they are unfortunate enough to undergo something like that in the hospital and the family witnesses it, I think it kind of adds like an extra layer of shock to it. Mm -hmm. So again, when we approach this, I think that a lot of people who are listening right now are probably turned off by the conversation again, because it's just, it's an uncomfortable thing to discuss. Um, I think that one way we can make it a bit more approachable and make sure that people understand the importance of this is talking about sort of the risk versus the reward of having a plan in place for whatever that case may be. So can you talk about some of your experiences with maybe patients or just in general who have had a plan in place and know that when they come to that end of their life, they, they're going to do A, B, and C versus the people who kind of deny it and kind of walk into it blindly and then deal with this this horrible end because they they don't see it coming or they're not accepting that it's going to come. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've seen both uh, ends. Um, I mean, obviously, nobody wants to think about death. It's a horrible, sad subject. Um, you know, I was devastated when I lost my grandfather. Um, but you know, he also was 83 years old and had smoked his entire life. And it didn't really come as a surprise that he had a stroke. Um, 
but it didn't, you know, ease the devastation of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, and that's true with expected and unexpected deaths. Um, as far as my time in the ICU, um, it was sometimes uh, patients would come to us that had a plan in place, um, but it was kind of more family members pushing them to continue their care because otherwise, um, idealistically, they would never come to the ICU. They would just go straight to um, the palliative care service um, and be up in a quieter, calmer environment. Um, but sometimes um, if they had a low blood pressure, uh, the patient would be agreeable to, you know, we'll give it a shot for a day or so on um, intense uh, blood pressure meds to keep their blood pressure elevated. Um, and then, uh, you know, they would say, okay, we tried, but this isn't happening. I'm not getting better. And so then we would withdraw the medications. And um, it, I mean, uh, sometimes it wasn't like a immediate death. Um, and so, in those times, it was actually beautiful to spend time with the patient and the family. And um, I, as the nurse's aide, I transported the patient. So I would always take them up to their new room where they it was quiet and, you know, there's no noise. Like the ICU is just so noisy and overwhelming. Um, and uh, just watch them enjoy each other and, you know, talk about good times that they've had and how much they love each other. And, um, yeah. And on, 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 on the opposite side of that, um, I've seen people who have very advanced disease processes that, um, the conversation should have been had before they reached the point of needing intensive care. Mm-hmm. But because of the reluctance to, um, accept that death may be a possibility, or, um, you know, this illusion that uh, medicine can cure everything and that, you know, I heard, I mean, you hear it a lot, like, oh, miracles happen. Mm, Yeah, I mean, they do. Um, I'm not saying they don't, um, but in my time there, uh, it was very rare. Um, It was a very, very sad environment. I never want to work in an ICU ever again. I appreciate my experience. I loved my coworkers, but I never want to work in an environment like that again. I want to help people from experiencing what I have witnessed. Um, so yeah, so the families that and patients who kind of um, who did not plan for this. I mean, it it was kind of like not only were they shocked that this code was happening and we allowed families if they wanted to stick around for the code they were more than welcome to um you know stand outside the room and watch but a lot of them thought they wanted to be there but then would you know turn away and 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 go to the waiting room because i mean you when cpr is done properly you are breaking ribs you are pushing hard enough to pump, to manually pump the heart hard enough to get blood to your brain. That's the whole point of CPR. Mm. And on top of that, there's people yelling and, you know, everyone, uh, there's, you know, they're sticking a tube down their throat. And um, sometimes they're, you know, running uh, uh, like a rapid transfuser of IV fluids. And so um, they're just completely naked and so that we can have access to all of the major vessels. And, um, you know, it's chaotic and it's awful. And, Mm. and it's, it's heartbreaking for me to see family members have to 
watch their loved one leave this world like that. And um, I think, um, I mean, I'll never forget a lot of the um, codes that I was a part of. And to this day, I can still see the faces of some of the patients that we lost. And um, if I was the last one to be doing um, compressions, um, you, I would, <laughs> they would call the code and then you, I would look down at them and there's the intubation tube just hanging out of their mouth and there's just the room is a mess and the family is either there sobbing or they'd gone out to the waiting room and it's just, it's terrible. And um, I mean, I'm not saying that we should never code people. There's definitely people where that would be an appropriate thing to do, but I'm talking, these are people who were, had severe advanced illness, advanced age, um, their likelihood of surviving at all, yet alone a cardiac arrest, was very, very slim. And it could have all been prevented had these conversations been held at an appropriate time. Mm -hmm. Now, if an experience like that has such a lasting effect on somebody like you who really doesn't have much of a relationship with the patient, you can imagine what the the feeling is of having a person that you've spent your life around and somebody that you love so dearly those being the last moments that you get to spend with them and if you could avoid that in any way it seems like something that you would absolutely want to do no matter how hard the conversation would be exactly i'll i'll, I'll never forget and i wrote about it in my blog last year but mm. um i don't know if i mentioned it specifically but the patient that i was talking about um he was uh, in his late 80s, had, um, you know, a whole slew of medical issues and um, was in severe heart failure. And um, for some reason, the admitting cardiologist refused, did not have the conversation. I don't know if he, um, you know, blatantly neglected it or um, just kind of didn't want to do it because it takes time and it's uncomfortable to have that conversation. But um, his wife was just, she, and so she didn't understand the severity of his disease and what this hospitalization meant. And so when he coded, um, and again, it was an awful thing. She stood in the corner and they called it. I was last to do <clears throat> compressions and um i mean she just stood there and i do what i normally do and i put my hand on her shoulder and said i'm so sorry for your loss and she just said all he would have wanted is to have one last pepsi and so i felt so bad for her that i went down to the cafeteria and bought her a bottle of pepsi so that she could sit with him and I don't know, enjoy their favorite soda together. And yeah, I mean, had that conversation been had, then um, in those last hours of life, as we saw him progressively declining to the point where we knew that a code was around the corner, they could have been enjoying a Pepsi together and, and talking together and not, not, how it ha ha not how it ended up happening. So in, in situations like that, of course, some of it falls on the patient for um, 
not having the plan or not accepting what uh, uh, the real expectations are for their situation. But how much of it comes back to the physician and how how do you approach that conversation with a patient of saying this is really what the expected outcome is for you, especially when it's something so it's death, you know, and saying you're going to lose this person. How what is that conversation like? How how does that occur? It's it's not easy. It kind of goes back to what you said originally that people don't want to talk about death. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, our, in our society, we think that that talking about it will usher it in. And mm-hmm. the challenge is that these kinds of conversations actually are not about death; they're about life. Mm-hmm. And that can be a, a slight difference, but they really are about how I want to live my life to its fullest for whatever time I have, and I need to be clear about what that time is. And the, the problem is you've got, you're right, the patient who may have some diagnosis that they don't want to talk about, or they're hearing things that perhaps even the the greatest communicator of a physician could be giving, they're hearing something different. Like we will say in our cancer center, um, an oncologist may say to, to the patient, we can do this treatment. There is a, a 40% chance, uh, there's a 40% response rate which means there's a 40% chance that anything positive may happen. You may respond positively in this, uh, in just the the smallest way, that's part of the 40%. What the patient is hearing is there's a 40% chance I'm gonna be cured. Mm -hmm. And and we don't then go that next step. So there's the the side of the patient, but then it's the same issue for the the physician as well, the provider Mm -hmm. that they're they're dealing with their mortality too. And and these are not easy conversations to have. Nobody's super excited to have them. Uh, and it's easier to say, I only have 15 minutes with, that, with every patient and then I need to move on. Mm-hmm. And if I get wrapped up in this three and a half hour conversation with a patient and their family, and there are a lot of tears, I wasn't really equipped for that. I'm a scientist, mm-hmm. not a counselor. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes physicians will intentionally keep keep the the conversation on a higher level because they are uncomfortable with it. And the few that are good at it um, still sometimes risk the I, you know, the angel and devil on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. I really want to talk with them about this. However, I don't really have the time to do it. When in fact it's not, it doesn't need to be a long conversation. We all have thankfully, a lot of support. And it's not up to just the physician to to be giving the news. You can have counselors at your disposal, social workers, chaplains. And if you have a good relationship or build a good relationship with an interdisciplinary team, then everybody's working at their highest level and the patient gets what he or she wants too, the truth. People often say, I don't want to share that information because um, I will, uh, I'll, I'll make the patient give up hope instead of recognizing that the, it's not our place to decide what the patient helps for. Mm. And the facts are the facts. You are right, Katie, that there are times that, that miracles do happen. Very rarely do they happen because um, we are trying this new treatment. They, they usually happen in spite of the treatment mm-hmm. that we're going to give them. So when folks say they're going to rely on, on their faith, I, I say, yay, great, do it. Um, we're going to treat based on the normal trajectory that 95, 98% of, of patients 
uh, fall in. But if anything changes along the way, we're going to change that that plan for you too. Mm-hmm. Or we may say, we're going to give you the news. And if you want to try heavy treatment, totally fine. But after this amount of time, we're, if, if you haven't responded, we're going to, we're going to have another conversation because there is an ethical side for the physicians as well that, that sometimes we forget that the patient isn't the one true, only calling the shots. The physician has to follow their ethics mm-hmm. and, uh, and the principles that they've committed to. And death is not always the worst thing. Uh, torture is a whole lot worse. And we've seen, I know we've both seen a lot of what I would categorize as torture by trying to give a patient what he or she wants, but what they want is not based on any kind of medical expertise. Mm-hmm. We're not giving them the appropriate information. Mm. And I think that goes along perfectly with what we're being taught in medical school mm. is this model of shared decision making. And so, you know, in the past medicine seemed to be kind of more paternalistic. So the doc, whatever the doctor said goes, mm. but that's not how it is and that's not how it should be. And so our job as physicians is to give the patient all the information we can and help them understand their disease process and their um, options and treatment and have a conversation with them about how um, what they choose will affect their life. And I loved what Lori said about, yeah, we avoid the conversation about death, but when you see people who are forced to um, have the conversation about death, um, for example, uh, there's this excellent documentary on Showtime. If anyone has access to Showtime, they should check it out. It's called Endgame. Mm-hmm. And um, they, it's a, um, I think it's like, seven episodes long. Um, There's one patient that they follow um, for each episode um, or throughout the entire uh, series. Mm -hmm. Um, But then each episode has uh, another patient with um, some disease that they're dying of. And you watch what what they go through and what the family goes through. And overwhelmingly, you see patients that um, find what means the most to them in life. And that's when they find peace and comfort. Um, and they, they finally realize what's important to them. So um, if we could just accept the fact that we are mortal and that we will die someday, that it might actually help us to be happier, to find what makes us happy and what makes life worth living. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that note, super quick, um, if anyone, another really great resource is um, the End Well Project. Um, it, uh, you know, I'm not even really sure. I think it's a, um, what's an organization of some sort, obviously, but I think it's a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this hilarious and awesome video um, by uh Dr. Uh, Jessica ugh, Zitter, Zider. Um, <laughs> she's uh, she's the uh, doctor that's actually on um, Netflix's uh, Extremists, um, the palliative care doc in the ICU on Netflix, uh, on the Netflix documentary Extremists. So she talks about it's called teaching uh, teaching past the taboo. And so um, she goes into it and she compares talking about death um, as talking about sex. Um, You know, 
it wasn't long ago that it was forbidden to talk about sex at all and yet alone in schools. Mm. But then there were consequences to that, um, STIs, pregnancy. And so finally we came to the realization that um, although the subject is uncomfortable and nobody wants to talk about it, it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And so um, in this video, they talk about how they actually went to a high school in um, Oakland and um, had a death talk. And um, they did all kinds of education about end of life care and um, did a couple activities with the high schoolers. And um, they said that the response they got from that was overwhelmingly positive because it turns out there were several students in the class that um, had recently experienced um, death of a family or death of a friend and they didn't really they didn't know how to cope with it they didn't know how to talk about it they didn't know how to understand it um, and that helped them a lot in their understanding and it helped a lot with them understanding uh their own mortality, even at a young age. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's important to instill that message at a young age, because it really relatively wasn't long ago that our life expectancy was, you know, what, like 50 years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm -hmm. You're, I'm glad that you brought up the 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 models for decision making and, and relationship, the physician patient relationship, because medicine has changed and it's changing rapidly and it does change almost every generation anyway, but ours, it's in this generation, it's, it's happening so much more quickly. And I think of my own parents who are 80 and they, they are used to that paternalistic model of, of the patient, uh, patient physician relationship. And so they, they say, my doctor went to school for 12 years. Why would I not just have him do whatever he wants? Because of course they have men as doctors for them mm -hmm. and uh, who are getting ready to retire, many of whom are also following that paternalistic model. And they say, why, why wouldn't I rely on, on them? And, and then we have the younger uh, adults who understand, hey, I got a choice in this. And yes, you have all of this education and training, but I know me better than you know me. Mm -hmm. So let's bring the two together. And there are, so there are the four or actually five different models for physician patient relationship. And the majority of them are, how do you have the actual relationship? What is it based on? And why are you making these decisions? So it, it falls right in, in with, with what you're saying about where we are today, where we're going, the fact that, that kids are less scared. Also they're in their minds a lot farther away from death. Mm -hmm. Whereas really they're, they're not because most of them before they graduate high school will have had a friend uh, that has committed suicide or has died. Uh, by the time they go to their 10 year reunion, there will be more. And of course they don't want to talk about it, but at least in Washington state, our kids get to choose for themselves if they want to have the heart on their driver's license. Mm. And they're making a major decision about organ donation. Most of them don't really understand what that means. And so when we get into the schools and say, hey, let's talk about advanced care planning, in their minds, it's more about their parents than it is about them. But we're getting in, we're sliding it in early. Mm -hmm. And we know that there are lots of statistics that, that feed into all of what we're talking about, like um, a patient or a person that has an advanced care plan and an advanced directive, whether it's five wishes or anything else, uh, spends 10 days less in the hospital in the last two years of life 
because not because they signed a document, but because that typically means they're having a conversation with their loved ones about what they just did, what what they're signing. Also, back to the to the intensive care unit, um, there is a an over five times greater risk of a family member having complicated grief and having um, post-traumatic stress as a result of their loved one dying in the ICU because of exactly the pictures that you that you just shared, what you illustrated. And if, when we can get a patient over into a hospice house or a palliative care wing, even an hour before they die, and we can get the family comfortable, at that point, it's somewhat less about the patient. Um, hopefully, the patient is not feeling anything. Uh, although, frankly, when they're in the ICU, often they are because our ICU is filled with with really experienced staff that knows how to cure people. Mm-hmm. And, and they're used to trying to get patients up and trying to give them just the minimal amount of medication. Whereas if a patient's on hospice or they have end, they're, they're following an end of life pathway, then they can get more comfort and more medical comfort. So get the family in for just a short amount of time, get them calm, give them the opportunity to have that Pepsi, mm-hmm. uh, to spend some time. And by the way, what you did there was huge with that, with that, uh, that family member guaranteed they will remember that. And so even though it, it didn't work the way that the, the patient and family wanted, what you did is, is game changing. It's that extra effort. Sometimes it doesn't take a lot, you know, a 60 cent. I don't know how much a can of soda costs these days. Um, but whatever, a, a can of soda, a bottle of, of something, um, a hand holding that, that can make all the difference to reduce that complicated grief and the post-traumatic stress. Mm. Absolutely. When we discuss um, the idea of education and educating uh, young people in schools and the idea that you brought up in Oakland, that was another question that I had. And we had discussed it before we started having this conversation today about um, there's a, a huge lapse in that in medical school in general. And that's kind of been a notorious part of when a physician goes into the field even they, the person who should really have the ultimate experience and understand the importance of this, they're kind of shocked themselves when they they run into that situation. So as a medical student and as somebody who spent a considerable amount of time in the, the field, what are the educational pieces that go into it? Or what are the pieces that are missing that can be improved on? I, w- I would say... Um... You know, I'm, I'm reaching the end of my preclinical years at school. And, um, you know, we had one hour of a lecture on um, end-of-life care. And we had uh, one hour of um, giving bad news. Um, and we're fortunate enough to have um, a standardized patient encounter where uh, we have to deliver bad news. And um, that evoked uh, quite an emotional reaction from a lot of classmates that um, did not expect to have a reaction. Um, and so I'm glad that we are doing what we're doing, um, but I don't think it's consistent across the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's hard in our preclinical years, we're learning all this stuff that we can do to save lives and um, help people get better. But there's never really a conversation. Although I will say, um, Dr. Brady, 
uh, who is um, uh, one of, he's an oncologist by trade. Um, he always has the conversations with us of, you need to look at the patient's situation. You need to look at the whole picture here before you start offering, you know, X, Y, Z treatments. Mm -hmm. And so there are some professors that address it and there are others that don't. And I don't blame them because that's not their job. Their job's to teach us about um, these procedures and medicines and, and whatnot, and not so much how we should be utilizing them. Um, but I think the biggest part is to even just bring into students' minds that um, just because we can do something doesn't always mean that we should do something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a medical student, I imagine a lot of the education comes down to the things that you can do to save somebody's life. And I think that that is probably a huge element of why it feels like failure when you can't save somebody's life, but you can't always save somebody's life. And again, there's a hundred percent mortality rate for everybody. So if you come to the end and you've instilled in yourself, I have all these amazing tools that are going to make this huge difference in somebody's life. It doesn't work. It's got to be devastating. And I imagine that that has a real effect on doctors as well, especially those who aren't really prepared for that moment. I, I mean, I have to say even, I mean, I think that I have a lot of experience with death. Um, and we, there was a, um, a sim lab that we had um, last semester and um, I was the task trainer, so I was the one that had to do the procedures. And um, I didn't intubate the dummy in time, and he died. And that had a like really like emotional impact on me. I mean, I felt horrible after that, and I was like, man, like this is just a robot. Like, you know, how am I gonna feel when? I'm responsible for someone's life and I'm incapable of, of, of saving it. Hopefully it won't be because they have, I don't know, that, that dummy was impossible to intubate over in the <laughs> East Sim lab. That's really hard. <laughs> that on the way out, the nurse told me, don't worry, no one can get that. <laughs> so that made me feel a little better, but still the impact was there. And, um, yeah, I think that just like you said, that, um, as physicians were learned we're learned, we're taught, <laughs> it's been a long day, uh, how to um, save lives. Um, but we also need to uh, remember the 100% mortality rate. Um, and um, I think educating on how to best support patients at the end of their lives um, will help doctors realize that um, there is that option to help your patients guide down that way in medical treatment as opposed to um, a curative treatment. I love that you're both, you've brought up several times the 100% mortality rate. I, I think the more we say it, the better. Uh, I made a commitment several years ago that whenever I would come and speak on campus, and I I don't know, I think I've been there four or five times to speak this this year to different different groups, I always start with the same thing. I always say, uh, if you're here to to cure patients, you're going to end up with a 100% failure rate because of exactly what you just said, the mortality rate. Everybody dies. And I usually pop up in something like, um, except for there were two dudes in the Old Testament. So if you <laughs> if you read the Old Testament then um, and you believe that, great. But your odds are not that great that you're going to encounter do them as patients. Exactly. Or that you're going to be any better um, than two in the many billions, you know, of, of folks we've had. But if you just change that trajectory a little, 
to my goal is not to cure everybody. My goal is to help everybody live their best lives. It makes all the difference, right? Uh, amen. That is exactly what I wish every doctor's goal was, is not to save people, but to help them live their best life. Um, that's what I love so much about the Five Wishes program, which Laurie, I would love for you to talk more about because yeah, you are definitely more, more like this. educated on that than me. But um, I, went, before I came to medical school, I um, was involved in a Oregon Senate, Senate community um, that uh, was looking to uh, remove the statute on Oregon's advanced directive form. Um, the form is from 1991 um, and was very outdated, uh, very focused on tube feeding um, and issues that were prevalent at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was um, fortunate enough to be a part of the discussion. Unfortunately, it was in a room full of lawyers who um, do not know what actual medicine happens and what reality is. But we reached an agreement that um, whatever new form of an advanced directive that comes out should be more of a narrative as opposed to a hard and fast, yes, I would want to be intubated. No, I wouldn't want to be intubated. Yes, I'd want CPR. No, I don't want CPR. And instead be more like what the five wishes program is, is, you know, I would only want to be alive if I were able to take a shower by myself, like, or dress myself or cook a meal or talk with my family, you know, things like that, that can give physicians a guide in trying to determine what therapy is appropriate. Um, Because when you do a hard and fast, no, I don't want to be intubated. Um, you could get an acute pneumonia. Sorry, guys. Awesome. Must be me. Yeah. <laughs> that is great. It's, it's because they know I'm terrified. <laughs> this is way too close to a train. <laughs> For anybody listening who doesn't know what's going on, uh, we record this podcast in an old train station, which is now a coffee shop. Um, and the train tracks are about. 15 feet away from the I'm window. I'm terrified yeah. that thing's going to so, derail and like The wall's right shaking. <laughs> so the sound that you hear right now is a massive train going by. It's um, a really long train. <laughs> shockingly, we've been recording here for a little while. This is the first time that we've had a train go by while we're recording. But yeah. it really adds well, to the ambiance. Well, a couple went by before we started, so I thought we were like Golden? Yeah. I keep feeling like it's not rattling so much. And mm-hmm. oh, there we go. There we go. All right. Five wishes. The train has passed. Yeah, Kim. Can we talk about what the the Five Wishes program is? Absolutely. I'm, I'm familiar with it. <gasps> well, good. <laughs> I'd love to talk about it. And and great setup and talking about Oregon. Oregon is one of the few states in the country that has legislated their advanced directives, which means if you are an Oregon resident, you can only um, you you have to follow their form of of an advanced directive. And an advanced directive is a um, a document. It's made up of two documents. The first document says, here's who the person I would want to make medical decisions for me if I can't make them myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, medical only. It's not, it's not your treasures. It's not your will. It's just medical decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second part of the document is, what would I want them to make decisions for? What do I want them to do? And is there are there any extenuating circumstances under which we I wouldn't want them to be making decisions? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So together, the durable power of attorney for healthcare and the living will, living will, 
come together to make an advanced directive. So Oregon is very stringent on what form you can use. And it's very clear. I want to name this person to be my medical power of attorney if I can't make medical decisions. And this is what I want them to follow. Mm-hmm. So so the work that Katie's been doing has been to try to, to broaden that a little bit, make it about the discussion, the conversation as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the only reason we have five wishes is, frankly, I'm maybe I'm not the sharpest tool, um, but we had a very complicated advanced directive at our hospital for several years. And it was this 10 page legalese. I have two graduate degrees and I couldn't understand what it said. And I would Mm. get phone calls all the time from patients preparing to come to the hospital. Hey, I was told I have to turn this in. I don't understand, you know, question number 43, subset Q, B. Um, Can you help me? No, I can't help you. And, And finally I realized, Oh, I know why they're calling me because on the back of the form, it says, if you have any questions, dial this number. And that was my number at at work, right? So I came across the five wishes and there were a few people using them around town. It is, and I mean this respectfully, not, not condescendingly, it is sort of the Sesame Street version of an advanced directive, Mm. but it's legal and binding in 42 states plus Washington, DC. So uh, we started using them really out of my ignorance and we started teaching on it and we uh, trained facilitators for it. And we happened to have a foundation at the hospital that said, hey, we'll buy a few for you, a few. Um, <laughs> so they gave me a few and I handed them out and I said, can I have some more? And they said, okay, we'll give you a hundred, use them sparingly. <laughs> That's just weird. So um, I, they said, just give them to patients. And I thought, well, everybody's going to be a patient someday. <laughs> so we handed them out. And, and it, this wasn't just me. I just happened to be the most vocal. And uh, finally, the foundation said, look, it, when we buy these in small batches, they're five bucks a piece. Mm-hmm. If we buy them in bulk, they're a dollar a piece. And for some reason, with all the technology we have, we cannot seem to figure out how to do advanced directives electronically. It's hard paper mm-hmm. and we have to keep them, uh, have people sign them and date them and notarize them. And then we can scan them electronically, but they don't float to the top where if I go from one clinic to a different hospital, I can see this. Washington mm-hmm. state did have a registry, but then it lost its funding in 2010, something like that. So uh, we don't have that kind of cloud for it anymore. Okay, so the, our foundation finally got tired of me asking and they started buying them in chunks of 10,000. And I think it was two weeks ago, I ordered our ninth set of 10,000 wow. for the community. And they, there are so many people in our community that are grateful for the work that's being done in advanced care planning in Yakima that they say, we'll keep donating if you'll keep training mm-hmm. and keep helping people make these decisions appropriately. And and I got to say that, that even with the, the Oregon document that's very simple, often physicians still don't understand what it is they're supposed to be doing. And you hit it on the head. Do you wanna? Well, I was just gonna say that, um, so even with the the POLST, the Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, um, a lot of times, um, even if it's filled out properly and dated and signed and everything, um, it just doesn't make a lot of medical sense. Um, You know, like they would say, I want everything done, I wanna be intubated, but no tube feeding. It's like, that's where they draw the line. Mm -hmm. And in medical procedures, it's really no big deal to stick a small flexible tube down your nose into your stomach and nutrition, like provide nutrition that way for a couple days. Mm -hmm. Um, 
where it's a really big deal to put a tube in your throat and breathe for you for a really long time. Yeah, but I think that's the language you're talking about. If somebody is unfamiliar, if they're not a medical expert and you hear right. tube feeding, you get a terrible image. Mm -hmm. and yeah, that's that's not a good way to approach it. Where the you said that the Sesame Street approach, but I think that that's a good way to do it, especially Agreed. at a high stress time when you're making a decision that's so important. You don't want to make people have to really think and get into the the medical. Well, and and that's and that's the thing is that it really shouldn't. It's perfect how it is in a, a Sesame Street level yeah. because when you complicate it more, and what I was going to say before that train came by is when you put specifics in there, um, say someone says, I don't want to be intubated. Well, what if they get um, an acute pneumonia that would require a day or two of intubation um, and that's it. But now you have this legal, legally binding document saying, I do not want to be intubated. So now what? And that puts the physician in um, a really weird position because you know that it's survivable, um, but they had documented this. And so that's why the five wishes makes sense. And it should be simple. It should be narrative um, to help guide treatment as opposed to specifically saying, you know, black, white, yes, this is what I want. I don't want this. Exactly. So here's what's so complicated. And we complicate it by having these these documents that aren't the Sesame Street. I love Sesame Street. And Ditto. we probably said Sesame Street more today than <laughs> anyone has in years. The official sponsor. Exactly. <laughs> and the letter Q. <laughs> so um, an advanced directive, what it's supposed to be about is if um, at least two physicians have determined that um, to attempt resuscitation is only going to delay the moment of your death and not give you any quality of life, then do you want do you want them to attempt resuscitation or not? Mm -hmm. um, it's not meant to be in the pneumonia case, or I use other illustrations like I get hit by a truck as soon as I walk out of here. I get hit by a truck in a lot of conversations. Train. Um, <laughs> or I get hit yeah. by a train, the good one. And um, for some reason I've survived, but my lungs have collapsed and I'm gonna need a chest tube and I'm gonna need to be on life support, but there's a really high risk of me recovering if my body gets a chance to to recover. The problem is sometimes our physicians aren't trained in that and they think, oh, she said DNR, so mm -hmm. she's a DNR. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want attempt res uh, resuscitation attempted, so do not resuscitate. And that's just not where, where an advanced directive is supposed to be. Besides, if you are outside the hospital, this can't be followed. The, mm -hmm. the advanced directive. Mm -hmm. That's where that green pulse form, well, green in, in Washington, isn't it pink in Oregon? It is pink. Okay. Um, so this physician order for life-sustaining treatment, this is the only physician order that a patient also signs. Mm -hmm. And they are in agreement, like, you're my doctor, um, and I believe I'm at a place in my life where I have something going wrong, and uh, there would probably be a very, even lower than normal uh, chance of recovery if my heart stopped or uh, I stopped breathing or probably a high chance that my heart will stop mm. or I'll stop breathing. And I don't want anybody banging on my chest or shooting electrodes through me. And you as my physician say, yeah, I agree with that. You are at a place in your life where that shouldn't be happening. So um, for outside the, ho the hospital setting, we would sign this and I'd keep this somewhere. So in Washington, most of the most of the time we ask people to put this on the fridge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's this is the only document that one of the um, first responders, paramedic, fireman, can come in and they cannot 
perform CPR on me mm-hmm. if my heart stops. I My family could wave the five wishes in front of their faces all day long mm-hmm. and when it says, I don't want you to attempt resuscitation. But it even says in there, I think it's on page seven, that it's, it, it states that whole conditional thing. If two physicians have determined that I'm likely to die in a short amount of time and attempting resuscitation is only going to delay the moment of my death, and I think that it says that, that, like that word for word, well, there aren't two physicians out here. So mm-hmm. the, the paramedic is at risk if he or she attempts resuscitation by using this. Mm-hmm. So this is really for in the hospital. Once I'm in the hospital, my doctor reads this and says, oh, this is what she wants. I, my, dad, um, my dad had a, a, a cabbage. I had a, high, a five-way heart bypass 30 years ago on April Fool's Day this year. That's a long time to be able to survive something like that. He d- And he's had lots of different um, things happen to him since. Mm. He's a super healthy guy with a really crappy heart. Um, <laughs> can I say crappy? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I just did. Uh, so, I'm the rule maker. So. Okay, thank you. Okay. So with a really bad heart. And so he has said, look, when, when my heart stops, because he's 82 also, super fit, exercises all the time, but he knows it's going to happen down the road because, oh, 100% mortality rate. So um, he said, when the time comes, I'm going to put in my five wishes and on my pulse. I don't want you shooting any electricity through me. And this is what he has done, actually. And But he also wrote, but I do want... No, no, no. He said it the other way. He said, I don't want anybody banging on my chest, Mm -hmm. but I would like you to shock me once just to be sure that God's not kidding. (laughs) Just one little, and that's it. Comes back to the April Fool's thing. Exactly. So so if it's a joke, then yay, he gets a little more time. But he never expected to live past 52. Mm -hmm. So it's a big deal for him to just have a, a little shock. And he's had them even when he's been conscious before, just because of lots of other stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's, he has AFib. Mm -hmm. So, he, he's a good example of the the reasons the the different uses for these. Did you want to jump in? Because I'll just keep on talking. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say you brought up a really good point um, about uh, physicians misunderstanding um, what a do not resuscitate order means. This is a to me it was surprising, uh, like a um, huge misconception. Um, in the medical world, um, and I think it's with physicians and with patients. Um, do not resuscitate in a hospital setting means if your heart stops beating, we will not do CPR. If you quit breathing, we will not intubate you and hook you up to a ventilator to breathe for you. It does not mean that we can't do aggressive treatment on you. I will never forget the day that one of the doctors in the hospital came by and I, you know, being the pre-medical student that was curious about everything, asked about this patient and I asked if um, she was going to go for dialysis that day. And the doc said, well, no, she's a DNR. And I said, but does that mean she can't get dialysis? And the doc just kind of looked at me and it was like, are we on the same page? Is she on comfort care? Because, okay, comfort care, sure. But um, a DNR, like she's not eligible for dialysis anymore Um, or, you know, blood pressure medications or, I mean, why is she in the ICU then? So, yeah, there's that's a huge misconception. And so one of the things that I hope to accomplish um, with this educational week is getting that straight right off the bat in our preclinical years <laughs> to Very help good. spread the, edu- mm-hmm. spread the education. <laughs> we have a misnomer in healthcare, and it has been in every 
place that I that I go visit, wherever I've worked. And whenever we have a patient that that is at the end of their life, um, and we're going to maybe we're going to remove, we're going to extubate the patient, we're going to uh, take them off of life support. Doesn't mean we're going to stop lots of other treatment, but we, we even say this in front of families, we're going to withdraw care. Mm -hmm. What they mean is we're going to withdraw aggressive treatment and they don't mean we're going to withdraw care, but it is no wonder that family members misunderstand and they're all, what? Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Well, no, Mm -hmm. we have to remove the tube. We have to stop some of these machines because your loved one is a do not attempt resuscitation um, patient, this is exactly what he or she wanted, mm. but they're hearing, and they are literally hearing, we're going to withdraw care. Yeah. And I want to mm. take that out of our vocabulary. Mm-hmm. We will never stop caring. Yeah. We are always going to keep the patient comfortable. And sometimes we have to retrain our staff to make sure that they are comfortable. Sometimes we get them into the, the hospice house and they're not comfortable yet, but we can make them comfortable. We, mm-hmm. we forget regularly, but that, that's a, obviously a hot button for me. Mm-hmm. Our it is no wonder, yeah, that we we get confused and and there is such a disconnect mm-hmm. between patients and providers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the wording of that is really poor, isn't it? it? Sounds, it yeah, it sounds like a terrible thing to have oh, yeah. happen to you or a loved one. Yep. Another question that I wanted to the discussion that I wanted to have. Um, I imagine that a lot of people who are listening to this as well, a part of the than not approaching this conversation is probably the fact that people think that doesn't have to do with me until it's too late. And then, so when should people begin making these considerations for themselves? When should this conversation start happening? Age 18. Yeah. I was going to say 18 because I saw uh, young people um, who, um, you know, in that exact mentality that's not gonna happen to me like Mm -hmm. i'm young i'm i'm so far away from dying like i don't need to think about that and then they get in a car accident um and then because they didn't say anything um we did everything we could to save their lives and we did technically save their lives but they were not there mentally at all Mm -hmm. i mean they weren't able to interact. They literally were just laying there on a ventilator. And then their future, um, in Oregon, um, there's only one uh, facility that accepts long-term ventilator patients, and it's in Portland, Oregon. Um, And this hospital was in Springfield, Oregon. So that's two hours. Mm -hmm. So now the family is going to be faced with having to drive two hours up to see their child who is on a ventilator, unresponsive, and uh, there's a high likelihood that he'll never regain consciousness. Um, I've told my parents, even before I started working in the ICU, uh, what I would want if I were ever to be in an unfortunate accident. And I have a uh, advanced directive. I, my, I make sure my parents have it. Um, and my husband and 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 every I try to talk to as many people as possible. People kind of think I'm weird because sometimes at parties I'll even like bring it up, and they're like, "Wow, what's what are you what are you talking about?" <laughs> Hang out at parties because I'm super fun. Also, what do you, what do you do for a living? You know, angel of death, gotta go. Right? Yeah. And I'm like, "Oh, baby, understood." More people should 
just have these conversations and they're like, yeah, yeah. cool. Kiss you later. <laughs> Seriously. Um, but no, but I mean, honestly though, but, but it kind of all comes back to that. It's not normal and it's not comfortable and it's not accepted. So people don't have, like people have that mentality of it's not going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. And then when it does, it's painful for the patient. It's even more painful for the family. Um, and it's painful for the healthcare providers. I mean, I was very affected by a lot of the patients that we took care of in the unit um, that had very uh, unfortunate uh, circumstances. Um, and it was really hard to, and some of them, um, you know, if even if they weren't um, like in a vegetative state, uh, I don't know if that's like the right term to use, but, um, you know, to watch them day after day just in so much pain and their likelihood of recovery was um, super small. And but we would just, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going because the family wouldn't, you know, want to give up, you know, and I hate even the term give up because, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, one time we had this guy that was really young and um his family never came to see him and we called them and we're like, Hey, you know, you should, you should stop by and see him. Um, even though he's like on a ventilator and can't speak and yada, yada, but they're like, Oh, we just can't stand to see him in that much pain. And it's like, yeah, me either. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's horrible to see him every day to have to, you know, roll him side to side to do basic hygiene care and make sure he doesn't get bed sores. And he was on blood pressure blood pressure medication so long that his finger literally fell off. Uh, Yeah. Mm. Um, So, I mean, yeah, I think that (laughs) after that long spiel, I think that everybody should have this conversation uh, at the age of 18. I mean, it's true. And and you you hit it on the head that it's not normal. It doesn't feel comfortable, but we can be normalizing it. Mm. And I think that's a goal. And there is precedent that's been set um, there, there's this community. I talk about them all the time. I should get some sort of commission from the the <laughs> Lacrosse, Wisconsin. I don't know, city of whatever. Wisconsin. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, in Lacrosse, Wisconsin, they they have uh, a program because of exactly what we are talking about. Their hospital ethicist was so tired of being in the intensive care unit with the the patient non not responsive at end of life, lying in the gurney, and there's the family uh, surrounding the patient. And he comes in and says, so what did your loved one want? What would your loved one want? And they didn't know because they'd never had the conversation. So of course, then they would say, do everything, do everything, when that wasn't the right thing to do. And so he said, enough. And he got um, enough backing and enough people to start having the conversations and having more conversations and start doing advanced care planning so much so that they have normalized the these uh, this advanced directive talk mm-hmm. in Lacrosse, Wisconsin. So nationally, a third of Americans have completed an advanced directive, but in Lacrosse, Wisconsin, over ninety six percent of their community members have completed it. And wow. they there's stuff all through the news. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's you can look up Lacrosse, Wisconsin on NPR or CBS Sunday Morning. They have a they have a really good. Uh, uh, a little spiel on it, and it's it's kind of entertaining too. And they are normalizing it. They're talking about it in coffee shops and at the bars and yeah. in family in in their homes, and they're making it uh, something that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And the way that they track it 
because it's easy to make numbers out of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they track it with the deaths that that come in into their hospital. Um, did that patient have an advanced directive and did we follow it? Mm-hmm. And so over 96% of, of their uh, patients have that. They can wow. answer yes to both. And it's only if they if both are a yes, mm-hmm. that not only did the patient have one, but we followed it, mm-hmm. do they get to count that as a yes? Wow. And it's pretty powerful stuff. And you said the national average or is one third? Yep. Yeah. It's like 25%. Wow. The last I checked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's And so we're doing a, an initiative in our cancer um, center right now at North Star Lodge. Uh, several years ago, we brought the five wishes in and we wanted to to really have this initiative where the, the we got the patients to bring in their advanced directive and to we could upload it into our electronic medical record. And uh, we were super excited when we got to 30%. <laughs> um, and the challenge is you've got somebody who's just been diagnosed with cancer. Now we want to ask about an advanced directive. And the way that we were asking actually often made the patient more nervous. Mm-hmm. What do you know? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Um, and when that isn't supposed to be the case, it yeah. should be um, not emotion driven. We should be backing it out and having this mm-hmm. in the clinic uh, rather than wait until you've had some nasty diagnosis. But if we present it right, normalizing it again. Mm-hmm. We are asking for this in all of our clinics. When you start a new clinic, we will ask if you have an advanced directive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Talk about being bombarded if you have some sort of a diagnosis like that. And then all of a sudden you're having this conversation for the first time on yeah. top of that being the forced conversation that you're involved in. There's no way that you can make a reasonable decision oh, for yeah. yourself or a loved one. Oh, that, and that was, that was a huge problem with, um, so a doctor I worked with, um, he actually started uh, a company um, an online startup company that um, did online advanced directives because he was, you know, an ICU doc. So he was tired of seeing the same thing happening mm-hmm. and wanted to make a difference. And um, he <laughs> thought that he would try to get away from the paper versions of everything that we just can't seem to escape um, so that, I don't know, that it could be accessible when you need to, when you need it. Um, anyways, but so uh, I helped him out with that. And um, part of our beta rollout to see how patients responded to it. It was like when I would go and um, talk to a patient that, you know, would be a good candidate for um, this, just for, for advanced care planning, it, the response was always, am I dying? Exactly. <laughs> it's like, well, hold on. <laughs> I mean, we're all dying. <laughs> so, um, but the other thing that um, I just thought of that is really important um, I unfortunately can't find it on my computer. I had a, I did um, a research paper uh, a couple of years ago on end of life care and um, ICU utilization, and um, it's a silent uh, public health crisis, actually. Um, and I mean, I saw it. It was, I mean, every day. It was, it was a very common thing to have patients in the unit who were receiving feudal care because of situations where families weren't ready to let go. Um, you know, they had unrealistic expectations, whatever. And so there's patients occupying beds in our unit that has limited capacity. And then patients who um, would actually uh, like benefit from intensive care um, would be down in our emergency department and there'd be nowhere to put them. And so then we'd have to transport them to a hospital in another uh, city. And that right there, transport itself is a, is a dangerous process. And um, I I forget the statistic, but um, it was, you know, 
really soon if we don't start changing our um, perspective on death and dying, um, our ICUs are going to be just overwhelmed and there's not going to be enough uh, intensive, there's literally physically not going to be enough intensive care beds and um, providers for the amount of patients that need mm -hmm. intensive care. Mm -hmm. That must be a massive um, benefit to a place like La Crosse too. They have the lowest healthcare cost in the country. Wow. Mm -hmm. By far. And wow. it, so that makes a difference. And so the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid drive healthcare because they are the payers, the biggest payers for health insurance, medical insurance. Um, and probably probably what will tip the scales before we, we have an extreme crisis, because that it, you're right, that's, that is absolutely where we're heading. Uh, Medicare will say, we're not gonna pay for that, we're mm -hmm. not gonna pay for that, and we're not gonna pay for that. And so mm -hmm. families are going to either, that we're gonna have a season where families are frantic and they're becoming bankrupt. Medical medical care is the number one reason that Americans go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's going to be more of that until we start really educating our community members that this is not the best way to go. If, if it's true, and I believe it is, at least those that were surveyed, and there were thousands, that 73% of Americans would like to die at home, and yet exactly that same percentage of Americans don't die at home, mm -hmm. they typically die in the hospital. Mm -hmm. uh, that's saying something. And it should be screaming loud and clear, we've got something that we need to be doing differently. And it's for that reason, um, I'll jump into into the, the surprise question, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, the, we, several years ago, we had a, um, a conference where we, where we brought in some, some national speakers on end-of-life care to Yakima, and we've been doing this every year for the last several. Um, and one of the, the speakers was a, a, medical, a hospice medical director who also had colleagues in the clinic and she would say, hey, if you have patients that are appropriate for hospice, let them know. They don't have to come to our hospice, but they need to go on hospice. So let us know. And, and the physician colleagues said, well, of course we will. Sure. You know, several months would go by and more and no more patients were coming in. And she would see that all of these patients were dying. Mm -hmm. So finally she went to them and said, what does this mean to you? <laughs> um, were they not appropriate for hospice? And they'd say, yep, nope, they weren't ready. Well, I saw that this patient was in your office and a week later they died. Oh yeah, I could see that part. Um, and she said, would you be surprised if they died? They would have died in six months? Oh, I never would have been surprised if they died in six months. And and she, she really, she was not the only person that had uh, come up with that question, but she was one of the instigators of the surprise question, which is, would you be surprised if your patient dies in the next six months? So she came here to Yakima and had all kinds of data because there have been clinical trials around the world on this surprise question. Usually it is relegated to a particular diagnosis of patient. Normally it's, it's cancer or um, heart failure patient where someone will do a clinical trial for a short amount of time, a, a set amount of time in a hospital or in a specialty clinic, um, and they will track would I be surprised if this patient died in the next six months? And then the kind of treatment that the provider gave. So after this physician came here, we um, all got to, several of us leaders got to talking and thought, why are we not asking this in our hospital when if you pull out those, uh, the moms that are having babies and those that are having straight hips and knees, the majority of these patients would be appropriate for palliative care. And that answer to that six-month question, if you answer, I wouldn't be surprised, that actually 
almost every time qualifies that patient for hospice mm. because that's that's actually the definition of a hospice patient the physician would not be surprised if they died in six months using medical you know diagnosis and prognosis and um several elements together but it's their gut feeling that allows a, a patient to go on to hospice along with the evidence so uh in february of 2016 um, I got to, together a, a group of folks, leaders from the hospital. It ended up in the next 10 months, there were 43 leaders that were involved in having the conversation about how could we standardize this surprise question and ask it for every inpatient admission, even the moms that are having babies, even the hips and knees. Um, and uh, I still can't believe we actually did it because normally it... A hospital's like a giant ship, and mm. turning it even a degree takes an act of God. And this was only 10 months, and I was super frustrated by the end of 10 months and figured we should have been able to do it. But as I look back, I realize this was a big deal. And so December 21st of 2016, uh, we standardized the surprise question, which meant as the physician is... Um, putting in all the data on the computer to admit the patient, there's a hard stop. They can't go any farther on the computer in their admission, which they have to do in a timely uh, manner. And, and they have to answer the surprise question. Would I be surprised if this patient died in the next six months? If in their thought bu bubble, they're saying, yes, I'd be surprised. She's having a baby and she's fine. Mm -hmm. um, then they click the, yes, I'd be surprised. And they get to move on. Mm -hmm. If they wouldn't be surprised, then they click the, no, I wouldn't be surprised box. That generates an order to our inpatient palliative care consult team which is a non-clinical team in our hospital. It's folks that are um, are used to, they've, they've been trained in palliative care. They're trained in difficult conversations. They, uh, they work with the physician and the nurses, but they are made up of master's level social workers and chaplains. Mm -hmm. So our chaplains do a lot of different work than other chaplains do. And we have, uh, I think 11 or 12 paid staff chaplains in our system. So uh, we, the first, physician that answered the question, and you've heard this so many times, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> the first physician that answered the question was an orthodoc, and he was getting ready to replace an E. And, um, and so we thought, it's a little awkward question. Maybe he got it wrong. Mm -hmm. So we went up there and, and asked this doctor, super kind. He was really open, and I was really surprised because I'd heard some rumblings. There were some docs that that's one more thing, mm -hmm. and they're busy, mm -hmm. and I don't want to have to think about this. Uh, but he was not one of them. He said, no, I answered it right. Um, and we were all, what do you mean? Mm -hmm. And, uh, he said, he said something along the lines of, well, this is a 78 year old woman who has CHF, COPD, um, eight more abbreviations. And, um, and no, I wouldn't be surprised if she died in the next six months, which of course begs the question, why are you replacing the knee? Mm -hmm. Right. But, um, we didn't ask that because we were pretty timid. So <laughs> instead we said, can, can we go talk to, do, would you be okay with us talking to this patient? And he said, knock yourself out. Great, go. So we go to talk to the patient. One of us went and the, the patient said, I'm about to get a new knee. I have a new lease on life. I'm, I'm good. And all we weren't going in. We don't ever go in and say, hey, your doctor clicked a box. I'm really <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, but instead, we go in and never talk about hospice unless the physician wants us to or the patient asks us to. Mm -hmm. um, instead, we talk about palliative care. Hey, and most people don't know what that means. But hey, we we see that, that given everything that's going on, we'd like to know from you first. What do you know about why you're here? 
and what's your plan when you leave? And could we help you with another level of care uh, when you get out of here? And she was all, nope, I'm good. Hmm. Well, within a week, her family had called and said, somebody came in and was asking about this extra level of care, this palliative care, things aren't going very well. Hmm. We ended up getting her on to palliative care and then soon after that got onto hospice. From the time that she that we first met her, um, she was dead in two months. Wow. But we considered it a real success because she'd gotten onto hospice. Mm -hmm. And when an average length of stay is like 17 days, uh, we're not getting our patients on soon enough. Just like that medical director had said, um, they're just not getting on here and the physicians aren't getting it. So, so many of our patients are coming on with one or two days uh, of hospice um, before they die. So the point of the surprise question is for the physician to not just look at the reason that the patient's in the hospital, the hips, the knee, the, the one thing that's going on, mm -hmm. but to step back, and that's part of your training anyway, to step back and look at the patient more holistically. Mm -hmm. I could replace the knee, but should I? Mm -hmm. Is that gonna be the best thing for that patient? Often we'll get patients that haven't been walking in years, not often, sometimes we get patients that haven't been walking in years, and then they fall out of their wheelchair and the, they crush the their hip or their knee or whatever, mm -hmm. and the first thing we think of is let's replace that. Mm -hmm. Well, but they're not gonna, their baseline isn't even walking. Mm -hmm. So why would we do that when there are other more comfortable methods, mm -hmm. when surgery is really traumatic and you get somebody that's that's got all kinds of other things going wrong, why would we inflict that that really would not be beneficial? Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes we're just thinking, gotta replace the knee, gotta do this, I gotta set the joint, I gotta mm -hmm. do whatever, when there may be something better. So that's the purpose of the surprise question and it is changing the game for us. We also started a clinical trial a couple of years ago uh, through PNWU, and we've been able to continue that. And, and we match our surprise question data, would I be surprised if this patient died in the next six months, with our Washington State death data. So you don't have to have died in Yakima. Um, and the majority of patients, we may miss a couple. There may be one or two that, I don't know, goes to Arizona and dies in the winter. But if they have been in the hospital, then, um, and the answer, the physician that then has answered the question, we're going to be able to see how accurate we are six months down the road. Mm -hmm. So it, it's been really beneficial for us because we can separate that data out uh, between individual uh, physicians or a specialty practice. Maybe it's the pulmonologists or the the uh, cardiologists. We had I, one physician along, uh, soon after we started this, it feels like a long time ago. Um, that's only two years. Um, <laughs> long time ago. Uh, he was answering the surprise, he answered the surprise question, then went in to the patient room and um, started to talk about palliative care and hospice. And the husband, clearly this was the first time he'd, see, he'd heard this and his eyes just got huge. And he did the doctor, doctor, let's go out. And um, can we go out into the, into the hallway? And... The husband said, are we really at this point? No one's ever talked about this before, which is a, a problem that we have. We need to be backing this out into the clinics, which we've started doing. But at the time, it was only in the hospital. And this cardiologist said, you know, frankly, I never would have thought to talk with you about this before, but your wife entered the hospital and I have to answer this question. The question is, would I be surprised if she died in the next six months? He said, I got to be honest with you. I wouldn't be surprised if she died in the next six months. More importantly, if I wouldn't be surprised, you shouldn't be either. Mm -hmm. And so then he was able to have a really good conversation with the husband. They go back in the room and they have the good conversation with the wife. That's what this is all about. Mm -hmm.
I so, just I just want to add. I mean, I really think that this. I mean, this could be a whole separate podcast, but the mm-hmm. subjects of hospice and palliative care and the differences between them and what they entail because that's the other part is that there's such a huge misunderstanding of what hospice care is and what palliative care is um and you know there's statistics that show that patients um who enter hospice actually live longer Mm -hmm. than patients that um you know stay on things like chemotherapy you're right absolutely I you asked earlier about it in the schools, and I think that PNWU is doing a really good job. I think there's much more we could be doing, like having it truly in the curriculum, mm-hmm. um, having it heavily in the curriculum, because uh, a we're all going to get there. Uh, B there's that 100% mortality mm-hmm. rate anyway that we should be keeping on our minds. But C that's truly about great medicine, mm-hmm. uh, knowing when to to provide, when to offer what procedures. Um, or what courses of treatment, um, it's all part of this. And uh, we all are aging, obviously, uh, from the moment we're born. So why would we not be really open about this and normalize it? Mm-hmm. And I, I just think there's there's an an opening where, where we could be leading the pack. There's so much good that's going on in advancing illness in Yakima. I'm super grateful to be able to live here. Um, I get to go speak around the country on on this little Yakima stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think PNWU is also poised to do the same thing. Mm. I, I mean, I'm not just saying this because we're on a PNWU podcast, but I could not be more proud to be a student at PNWU. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, this What Matters in the End Week was yeah. Sarah Couch, another first year and I went to Dr. Sorrell's and we were like, hey, um, we think that we should hold some information sessions on end of life care. And he was like, that's a great idea. What do you want to do? And so then we formed this committee. What was that like in January or yes. February or something? And I can't um, believe anybody showed up. I know. <laughs> it was Me great. Either. I mean, that, that says a lot about you and, and, and those that you've surrounded yourself, yourself with that, that are so excited that people will come to an end of life seminar with very little notice. That mm-hmm. it speaks volumes about, about you, about the team and about the school. I mean, the school, the students are just, I have so many inspirational classmates. I am just blown away by what they do. Um, I mean, Logan Noon and everything that he's done for um, mental health and uh, working to end that stigma, um, especially in the medical uh, community. Um, And the fact that PNWU not only, like, I guess allows this, but like, fully supports us. I mean, they are 100% behind us. They listen to our feedback. They want to know what we're passionate about and what we care about. And they do things to support us in our passions. And um, I mean, it. if I could go back in time and know everything, you know, if I had like my pick of any medical school in the US, I would pick Pacific Northwest University mm-hmm. in Yakima because mm-hmm. This place is so incredibly special in mm-hmm. so many ways, and I genuinely mean that. And um, what we were saying, what you were saying about um, looking at the person as a whole—that's the whole reason that I only applied to osteopathic schools because I, from the get-go, 
I, it just made sense. When I looked into it, I'm like, how could medicine be practiced any other way but looking at the patient as a whole, not just looking at lab results or imaging results or, you know, their, their um, symptoms, um, but looking at, you know, their lifestyle and their, their stressors and um, other things that affect their health. And, um, and then that and I really wanted to learn osteopathic manipulation. Um, so... Yeah, but I think that PNWU is, uh, is, is it really, they teach us, that is our philosophy in our profession, and PNWU does an awesome job of reinforcing that uh, principle in looking at the patient as a whole, and that plays in so well with this, you know, getting this conversation going about end-of-life care and how we as physicians can facilitate that. You're exactly right. So CMS, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, um, as they drive healthcare, they require that all hospice patients be given that holistic care, physical, emotional, and spiritual care. They require they require a social worker. Mm-hmm. They require a chaplain. Um, they they want patients to be whole, as, even as they're dying, especially as they're dying, uh, because people that are at peace actually die better. Um, those that are more comfortable die better. You're right that they live longer, which isn't the goal of hospice is to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they do live longer. And hospitals that are that are taking on that philosophy are doing a lot better too, because as healthcare is changing quickly, a goal is to keep the hospitals um, more empty mm-hmm. uh, and and to really be focusing on those tremendously acute patients um, and then work with patients outside the hospital uh, organizations are, are doing so much to have, um, home-based care, mm-hmm. uh, influence medical care. And, and that is such a growing population. What I read, uh, 10.8, it's supposed to increase home-based care, 10.8% every year for the next seven years. Uh, that's a lot. That's a huge increase. We're having physicians that are once again, full circle going back into the home and mm-hmm. that's their practice, mm-hmm. uh, whole physician groups. And the quality of care is exponentially increased. Patients love it. Wouldn't you love it? I'd love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My, my physician come to my home instead of me having to go wait in the waiting room. I get to be in my own home. Well, and mm-hmm. I mean, as if there aren't enough reasons for us to keep promoting our agenda here. Um, <laughs> not only do, are the patients dying better um, and in more peace and less stress, but the families are, mm-hmm. um, their grief is lessened when it, they go through hospice programs because they provide that holistic care. And um, like you said earlier, I mean, families that, I mean, and there's statistical data on it too, families that, um, and patients, there's uh, ICU PTSD is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so looking at, that way of leaving this world versus maybe at home or in a hospice center with my family. I I know which way I want to go. And I guess one thing that we didn't talk about um, is is the provider, the physician. Uh, our our physicians get so much satisfaction about the work that they get to do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're doing exactly what a lot of physicians are scared mm-hmm. of the death. Mm-hmm. And but because they know they're helping these patients die well, mm-hmm. uh, some people say that the hospice is about the goal is to help patients die well. But back to if if, if I'm diagnosed or when I'm diagnosed with some sort of uh, life limiting or life ending disease, my goal probably won't be to die well. 
it, it comes back to what we talked about earlier. It'll again be to live well. Mm -hmm. And so these physicians have amazing stories um, of, of how they helped those patients, but it wasn't them on their own. It, it's along with the, the other disciplines mm -hmm. that are helping them along the way. So pretty powerful stuff. Absolutely. So Katie, you've brought up um, what matters in the end week. Last year was the first year that it was run. You're running it again this year, correct? Mm -hmm. yeah. How can people be involved in that if they're in this community or wherever they wanna be and wanna? Oh man, should have uh, pulled up my calendar to make sure I have the right date. Um, so we actually are having a um, community night on um, Wednesday, March 27th. Um, and I don't know the time and I don't have- We'll the... post all of it. Oh, okay, cool, post yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, we're having um, a keynote speaker. We're gonna um, be having uh, different um, resources available, the Five Wishes program. Um, uh, even last year we had uh, some funeral homes come and um, patients actually really enjoyed that um, to, to meet those representatives and mm -hmm. think about those options because that's just unfortunately also something you have to think about. Yeah. But you're um, doing it when people aren't in crisis. Exactly. That makes and that's, all the difference. That's the key, exactly. Um, and yeah, but we would love for everyone to come out to PNWU and be there for a night of education on end of life care and advanced care planning and to access um, these valuable resources because it's something that's not on your mind every day. I get it. I don't think about death nonstop, but, um, you know, it's not like high priority. Um, but this is an opportunity for the community to come out to the school, um, see the school. Um, I believe we're going to be giving tours, um, and, uh, and get the, get the resources that they need to, to, to get this done and have this conversation. Cause at the end of the day, it's the conversations with your loved ones that are going to dictate your care. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you, if you don't have this conversation or if you don't have this documentation, it's going to be your loved ones that are telling the doctors what you would want. And so it's so important. And so even if you don't end up getting this legally signed and then put in the EMR system and yada, yada, if you just sit down with your family and your loved or your loved one, whoever, and just have this conversation, that is like one of the most valuable things that you can do. Mm. Absolutely. So even though this is such an, an uncomfortable conversation to approach, <laughs> I really appreciate each of you coming in and just opening it up and uh, being able to have the conversation and explain why it's so important to to take something like this on. Because no matter how uncomfortable it is to approach the conversation, it's the consequences of not having that conversation are so much worse than mm -hmm. the discomfort that comes along with it. So thanks both of you for, for coming yeah. on. And, I look forward great. to continuing the conversation again because there's there's a lot more to yeah, to continue absolutely. discussing. Yeah. Thanks again for tuning into the Scientific Method. To be the first to hear upcoming episodes, including our conversations with the nation's leading healthcare experts on topics such as opioids in America, healthcare reform, corporate funded research, and more, subscribe now.